Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our webinar. Without better data, pension funds cannot possibly fulfil their ESG mandates. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and I'm delighted to moderate the discussion today. Now, from October this year, defined benefit pension schemes in the UK will join their defined contribution counterparts in being obliged to publish a report on how they fulfilled their environmental, social and governance ESG responsibilities in the previous year. The asset management industry has, of course, responded with characteristic generosity. An astonishing 84% of all new capital allocated to funds investing in equities has in the last two years gone into ESG specific products. According to the Investment Association, 38% of the total of £8.5 trillion under management by its members, whether they're in pooled funds or in segregated mandates, are now subject to at least the integration of ESG criteria. Similar trends, of course, are observable globally. ESG ETFs have grown 25-fold in just five years to $150 billion in assets under management last year. It's estimated now that Perhaps a third of all global assets under management, that's maybe 40 trillion US dollars, is now managed to ESG investment criteria. So it's curious that for an issue which is so socially, culturally and politically dominant, on which issuers as well as investors face regulatory obligations to report, and clearly on which so much money from so many people is now, for good or ill, riding into the future, it's curious that it should be so woefully inadequate in terms of data. As the IFRS Foundation consultation paper on sustainability reporting put it in September last year, asset managers and institutional investors are currently facing an increasing set of expectations from their customers, clients and beneficiaries while contending with underdeveloped data and analytics on investable assets. To help us understand how this extraordinary gap between objectives and information has come about and how it might be remedied, I'm joined by six experts in the field. Arthur Karabia is Director of Market Practice and Regulatory Policy at the International Capital Markets Association, where his responsibilities include helping ICMA members comply with the technical standards of the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation of the European Union. Svante Horn is a former head of fixed income sales for a variety of London-based investment banks, now advising the Stockholm-based Anthropocene Fixed Income Institute, whose purpose is to empower the bond markets to accelerate the positive climate transition at speed and at scale. Chris Johnson is a senior product manager in market data at HSBC Security Services. He helps asset managers and asset owners find meaningful and cost-effective data to measure their ESG investments. Chris Sear is executive chairman of Clearglass, which provides investment cost reports to pension funds by collecting data from asset managers to FCA mandated standards. Alex Truck is CEO at Goals First, a specialist fixed income manager he founded after leaving PIMCO, where he pioneered SDG linked bonds and active bondholder engagement as part of an ESG investment strategy. Natalie Winterfrost is a director at the Lord Debenture Pension Trust Corporation, where as an actuary, pension professional, and independent trustee, she sees at first hand how pension funds are adjusting to their ESG obligations. Now, in addition to our panelists, we also, of course, have you, our audience. We want your questions. We want your comments. Uh, so do send them. Do keep sending them throughout the webinar using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of the screen. I will not be saving those up to the end, but we'll endeavor to answer them as we go along. So you can be, if you want, an integral part of this conversation right from the start. And I think I speak for all of us if I say we're going to be deeply disappointed 
if you don't ask lots of questions and make lots of comments. I'm going to begin by making some characteristically cynical journalistic uh, observations. Uh, as it happened, I received this morning uh, the sustainability or stewardship report, I think it was called, from a small private bank in North America. It was more than 100 pages long. Uh, I went to the website of a major global bank uh, to look for their ESG report, and I was treated to the site of more than 30 separate documents, each of them many dozens and sometimes hundreds of pages long, about every conceivable uh, facet of, uh, of ESG, uh, you know, carbon emissions, modern slavery, gender diversity, uh, uh, gender pay gaps, um, compliance with the UN principles of green bonds. It was just, you could have a report on anything you like. There were 30 separate documents there. So as a, as a company in the, in the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100, you simply can't get away uh, with being a listed organization uh, uh, without uh, publishing very detailed information about what you're doing. The question, my question is, um, and I'd like um, Arthur and Chris to address this first, but Chris, Chris Johnson, that is, um, is all this information at all? Are we sort of drowning in a, in a, in a sea of, of, of data rather than of, of information? How, how, how can um, institutional investors possibly consume and understand and, and absorb and make use of this type of unstructured uh, data, which is what it appears to me to be, is it is it just marketing PR and sales guff uh, intended, like so much that goes on in compliance, to persuade the world that the organisation is is making the world a better place when in fact it wants to keep the world exactly as it is? Is this is this stuff of any value to investors whatsoever? What do you think, Arthur? Uh, thanks, thanks for the invitation, uh, Dominique. And I think it's better to have 100 pages, um, a couple of reports, than nothing. So that's the first thing. It's clear that I think uh, uh, you know this information issue, information coming from issuers has been, has been the basis for um, a lot of um, uh, uh, the products sold by data providers and a lot of uh, uh, you know the basis of a lot of uh, uh, fund and, and financial products. So it has been useful. Is it enough? Clearly not. We need to have a, um, a proper lo lo location of uh, the, the information. We need to have a standardization. And for that, we need to come up with uh, a series of KPIs that could work across sectors, but also that are sector specific. This exercise is very complicated. You, you, you know uh, uh, how complicated it is. You have a lot of uh, uh, frameworks, SISB, uh, GRI working on this and clearly people that have developed their own framework, went into different directions. Uh, sometimes um, there are some similarities in the framework. So um, we need to achieve better standardization. That, that is for sure. But we shouldn't be too harsh on issuers and what they do, right? Uh, especially when we look at Europe. Europe, uh, um, you know, the UK and, 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 and the rest of the EU, and back, back in the days, uh, uh, the EU uh, 28 uh, member states, uh, the legal obligation that applied to um, uh, issuers is to produce uh, uh, extra financial information report, and nobody told them which KPI they should report against. The uh, assessment of materiality and so-called double materiality is at the discretion of the issuer, and uh, because no one, the policymaker was not in a position to say you should report against this. Uh, so clearly it is an issue, but I think um, people are working on this, especially at European level at the moment, and we are hoping that uh, certainly uh, at ICMA, uh, we are hoping that uh, NFRD will be reviewed and will achieve uh, uh, 
some of the, the ideal uh, uh, outcomes I've just described. Yeah. Arthur, Chris, are we, Johnson, are we, are we drowning in unstructured data rather than information? After all, you have a responsibility to try and turn this stuff into something which uh, the end user can actually make use of. Am I being too cynical? Um, yeah, yes, I think probably, probably yes, Dominic. I would, I would say that that's 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 true. Um, I think Arthur's correct in that the starting point is the disclosure and transparency. Uh, the next stage is getting to where those company reports have a nice little table of metrics that are all exactly the same as each other with the the the, the required standard information, and that is if you like, the goal. Now, those company reports that you're describing, the one you describe may be an extreme case, certainly the ones I, I've seen aren't quite as unstructured as what you describe. But within those company reports, there will be information if that company is disclosing their carbon emissions and their carbon intensity and footprint and TCFD type information, that will be the place to find it. And that company will be disclosing it. Um, and that will be scrutinized by their investors, by the data suppliers, of which there are many who, who, who pull the right information out of these reports and, and obviously asset managers themselves. And where, where the task force on climate related disclosure which is TCFD um, has been pushing over recent years for those disclosures. I think those are becoming mandatory. I think one of the UK initiatives is to make TCFD uh, disclosures mandatory over the next year or two. Um, and with the um, EU, the um, uh, SFDR and CS. CSDR, uh, CSRD actually, sorry, I get it right, third time lucky, the Corporate Sustainable Disclosures Regulation. Those are focused on getting those company reports to disclose. And in the case of SFDR, the list of, of information is long. There will be a lot of information becoming available. So I think the, 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 um, the company reports are important and they will become increasingly the vehicle by which we get hold of information. With financial data, there are such things as perspectives where you can get information from. That's, that's what the company reports are in the world of ESG. Thanks, um, Chris. Uh, Natalie, mustn't confuse your CSRD with your CSDR. Um, I, when it, both Arthur and, uh, and Chris have mentioned data vendors, of which there are a number now operating in this area, which put me in mind of Eric Cantona's famously mysterious remark that uh, when seagulls follow the trawler, uh, it's because they can see that sardines will be thrown into the sea. In other words, is the demand for ESG information for processing this vast quantities of unstructured data being produced by listed companies leading to a increased supply of less than valuable uh, information, ESG information services from third party vendors and consultants? Yeah. <laughs> so Dominic, you mentioned, um, or it certainly has been mentioned that um, pension funds the largest ones any in any case are going to start going to have to start doing tcfd reporting themselves and interestingly the very largest pension funds are going to have to do tcfd reporting before companies are um, obligated to provide the data so they are really in the firing line um, in terms of who they're going to turn for to for this data i mean it, it's a big challenge um, for pension trustees like myself it, at the moment um we don't know how ready the asset managers are going to be to provide the data because they have no obligation to provide it. Um, and we also don't know yet um, what metrics we would be expected to um, publish because there is freedom to choose that. And at the moment, it's still quite early days for trustee boards thinking about this, deciding what they're going to set their long-term and short-term 
um, targets based on uh, and therefore what they're asking their asset managers for. Um, fortunately, um, there are there's going to be help. Uh, and I can tell you as a, as a, a professional trustee, I do have quite a lot of people coming to talk to me about what they can do for the pension scheme boards I sit on. So uh, the custodians are um, obviously reasonably well-placed holding the entire data for the large pension schemes to potentially be the ones to be the data providers of the TCFD across the portfolio. And there, of course, it gives you an advantage that it's one consistent data source, hopefully. Um, and the investment consultants are also readying themselves up um, potentially to, um, if not provide the data themselves, at least be aligned with someone so that they've got, a, got an offering. Uh, so it, it's a, going to be a very busy market and at least trustees aren't going to be out there on their own, not sure where to turn to. Thanks, Natalie. Before I let you go, this is, I promise this is my last um, cynical observation, but you, you brought up the question of asset managers. We now have asset managers who weren't famous for being um, ESG enthusiasts a few years ago, now very ostentatiously using stakes in companies to pressure the management to start disclosing um, ESG information. Um, is it too cynical of me to think they're actually engaged in a marketing campaign of their own saying, look at us, we, we, we're very ESG sound, we have lots of ESG funds you can invest in, or is this actually starting to produce real results from issuers in terms of the quality of information that they produce? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's not just about information, it's also about action. And you you may, you're, you're, you may be cynical, but I think there, there's a reason for some cynicism. So if we just take a step back, you mentioned in your introduction that there didn't used to be much in the way of flow into DSG funds. And when you are sort of a fiduciary of, of um, somebody else's money, uh, actually it's the, uh, the responsibility is to get the best financial um, return for the risks you can take, not to go out there and impose your own ethics on the portfolio you're looking after. And historically that was the view of ESG. So it was quite hard for pension funds to make allocations to the so the old fashioned um, negatively screened ESG portfolios. But moving on, we all know that um, there is political will to um, do what is needed to em embrace and, and rise to the climate challenge. And going forward, this means that there are real risks in investing in companies that um, aren't transitioning. Um, so as a trustee, you're actually really obligated to ensure that your asset manager is taking the risks and the opportunities there into account in the selection. So ESG has come, become from something specialist to an obvious part of a mainstream fund manager's responsibilities. Um, but then, yes, as you say, they therefore all claim they do it. And it's actually trying to figure out who is um, really doing what they say they do um, and, and actually who's greenwashing, which isn't an easy job. Uh, and then when you get to the point about um, engaging with companies, actually, I think it's quite widely accepted that just allocating your capital um, to low carbon is not the best investment strategy. You want to also um, engage with the existing holdings you've got and work with them to, to transition. 
Um, so stewardship is really important. It's more than just marketing, although perhaps some who are shouting about, about it uh, aren't effective and are just shouting about it, but we want to see fund managers doing it. Thanks, Chris Sear. Um, uh, our, uh, Natalie's brought up this question of how do you tell the difference between a, an ordinary fund and, a, and an ESG fund. Now, our friends at, at SCM Direct, who took a look at um, a bunch of funds, concluded that the scoring systems are nonsensical, third-party data providers operate with no benchmarks, and the lack of transparency makes it impossible for ethical investors to know where their money is really invested. Now, is that an exaggeration or is that uh, a confirmation that we're drowning in a sea of, of what Natalie referred to as greenwash? I, I completely agree, to be honest. Um, you know, we're looking at this right now. We, we, uh, we are in contact with a lot of managers. Um, we've collected data on cost and performance from 420 managers some 10,000 times for almost 1,000 clients now, DB clients. <clears throat> so we have lots and lots and lots of contacts and now we're collecting other data from the managers and it all comes in and, and, and where we have standardized things around cost and performance, we certainly have not standardized either the things that managers are reporting in. We haven't even standardized the way they describe what they do. And the CFA Institute has a task force, I think mostly in the US, that is looking at not standardizing the outputs, but standardizing the way in which managers describe what they do. It's a meta problem. They haven't got as far as, as standardizing that. Look, I was going to get, say a couple of things about how I feel about this because I've, I've gone on a very merry journey for the best part of a decade, 12 years almost now, trying to get disclosure on cost and performance and, and what's going on in this space right now around ESG, um, which again is a most terrible term because you can fragment that and segment that down to anyone that hundreds of different categories. But you know, I've been on a journey and I was going to point out the way in which I won with this journey and the way it's working at the moment. The first thing is to take the first step. And Arthur is absolutely right. Some information is better than no information. You have to start somewhere. You know, it's the first step out of the door is what leads you to an adventure. Um, it's eating an elephant. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You've got to start somewhere. And even if it's the wrong place, make, taking that first place, as you discovered, Dominic, when you went and looked at that, uh, the, uh, the, the disclosure of the company, the bank that you went into, they've started somewhere, but at least they've started and, and they're going to be subject to criticism for it as you uh, criticised them, but at least they've done something. And that's a whole lot better than the companies that haven't done anything. So let's make that clear. Doing something's better than doing nothing because it teaches you what the next step is. The next step is standardising the way in which the data is reported. The data is collected and reported. You've got to standardise that process you've got to create the standards the next part is standardizing the outputs so you've got the inputs and then you standardize the outputs the things that people see you're collecting the data on the way in you're creating reports you're standardizing the outputs you've got to standardize the outputs because then the next stage is to compare and you create indices you get large amounts of data and you compare across the entirety of the universe that you have and once you've done that, you can think about drawing benchmarks because you understand what the median, the mean, and the other things are. That is the journey. That is the journey you've got to go on. You've got to start somewhere, and the place where you end is comparative measures. And I also need to distinguish here between two different things, data that's used for regulatory reporting and data that's used for decision-making. They are two different things. So to give you an example, I mean, I'm sorry, it's just the way it is. The things you have to report about um, uh, to the regulator as a pension fund trustee 
are not necessarily the things that will, you will use to scrutinize, to check and to select the managers and to manage the managers that you use. They're two different data sets. One is almost entirely binary, quantitative. It'll have a number behind it. It'll be, this is our carbon footprint of our portfolios. The other will be, I've got two choices, that one or that one, which is larger. Both keep me within the thresholds, but I want to pick the one that's better because that's me with my good stewardship hat on. And they're two different data sets, Dominic, and we're nowhere near information, really the information we need to provide to do either of those things, either from a reporting perspective or indeed from a comparative perspective because everybody's reporting in a different way and on different things. I'd like to bring Alex Strzok in, but before I do that, Chris, could you just answer this one question, yes or no? Um, are pension funds being asked to do something which is basically impossible at the moment? The yes. data doesn't exist, the transparency isn't there, the disclosure isn't there, to comply yes. with their obligations? Yes, Okay. absolutely. They can't do it at the moment. Okay. Alex, um, you've, been, you've been very patient. Um, uh, do you agree with Chris um, about the, uh, the impossibility of the task facing pension funds today and do you have do you have direct experience of how expensive they're finding this what the cost of doing this this is so first of all i think i beg to differ um because i think uh, pension funds can do this today and uh, just listening throughout the um the rest of the conversation it's um it's framed as uh too much data is irrelevant data but i think uh, if we take a step back and put uh, take ourselves outside of a realm of esg and into capital markets I used to have this rule of thumb when I was creating ESG platform at PIMCO. If I can't explain it in simple language or in capital market terms, I can't explain it in ESG. So same principle must apply if you want to reach scale. And if I think about the competitive performance of asset managers or performance of investment decisions prior to 2000, it was all predicated on access. Did you have a Bloomberg? Did you have data to, uh, did you have access to reported financials? This is where how GAP came about. This is how IFRS came about. It was all predicated on access. Who do you know? Which university did you go to? Which broker dealer do you operate with? How much they're charging you? Alpha came from access. With technology, with advent of technology and uh, this fragmentation of uh, mega businesses like custody. If you think about custody today, you can break it down into individual pieces and they're available cheaper. Alpha today does not come from access, or at least asset managers, last asset managers would like you to believe that it is access. It's no longer access. It's the knowledge. It's the ability to ask the right questions. So to me, the point about data, yes, you can have a hundred page report. To me, it's amazing because in the 1970s and the 1960s, it's uh, your ability to decipher and your uh, exemplary sort of deductive powers is what led to performance. And you have this all in the reports today. And the more unstructured there is, the more alpha there is in financial terms, mm -hmm. which points out to if people are annoyed, uh, more specifically market is annoyed about data, data not being unstructured, it's because it's not transparent and not understood to a retail investor. But from a perspective of an asset manager, it's an advantage, it's not, it's not a disadvantage. Now comes uh, to pension trustees. I think what's uh, very, very interesting and that applies globally is this paradigm shift from uh, defined benefit posture to defined contribution posture. Because on a first level principles thinking, defined benefit is, uh, imagine your conversation with the beneficiary, trust us in 30 years, we're gonna give you a certain result. That's a promise. That's a passive behavior of a beneficiary towards its pension liability. Uh, 
Now, once it's moving to defined contribution, because there is a huge gap in defined benefits and the rates are low and it's becoming harder and harder and harder to fulfill the obligations on defined benefits, it creates a new behavior, which is defined contribution, you actively contribute and you're gonna be at the mercy of the markets, at the market volatility. But then the product mix hasn't really changed to satisfy that change from defined benefits to defined contribution, which is if you pension fund or you asset manager asking me a beneficiary or retail investor to take more risk, I need few things in return because now at the mercy of the markets, now I also need to understand what's going on. I need to understand your transparency and not only about the OSG factors, but let's take a step back. I need to start understanding how you invest. What's your beta? What's your alpha? What's your portfolio drift? And even before going into ESG, none of this information is available because asset management industry in its current form, it's predicated on this level of complexity of finance, which is closed gates, hire yourself additional financial advisors for them to explain to you how we invest, what is beta, what is alpha, uh, and what is the portfolio drift? Because once you ask those basic questions, the ESG questions come with it as well, because you start asking, you're digging deeper into the portfolio. So as an institutional investor, uh, as a retail investor or beneficiary, what you're missing in this new paradigm shift where you ask to take all the market risk is three things. You're missing transparency on what's going on. And that's not just on ESG. It's for asset managers to start being vocal about the sources of risk return and impact specifically. You're missing uh, uh, understanding of performance and more specifically, you're missing engagement. That is your right to engage. It's not asset manager's right to engage. It's not a pension trustee's right to engage. First and foremost, it is your, it's your property right given right to engage. It's a, it's a right to a voice. Which Alan, under the- I'm sorry, I, I, I think you, you, you may be right in theory, but the problem actually we have with defined contribution investing is that um, you, we get no engagement. The people who are saving, regardless of the fact that they are going to face the investment risk, don't want to make any investment choices or engage at all until the point of retirement. So about 90% of money sits in um, default options that have to be designed on their behalf. Uh, unfortunately, there is a disinterest. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm glad you said that actually, because um, that's what drove me to create goals first. Because, um, because uh, it's the what I'm recognizing is the paradigm shift where the data information and awareness exists for people to ask those questions, but the awareness that they can cannot does not. So just to back uh, what you just said, Natalie, by data, uh, I think Legal in General found in their survey that 80% of pensioners in the UK are even not aware or not actively executing their voting rights. So I, I can understand exactly what you're saying, but it, it's, not, it's not to say that the model that was predicated on access from the past is a fitting model of the future that should be predicated on knowledge. And one of the things we should be in innovative solutions and asset managers allowing for or encouraging is active participation from beneficiaries to trustees. Now, the second thing I wanna really quickly cover the trustees, because Dominic, you asked me a question, um, are trustees asked to do the impossible thing? Not really, you know, my background is, my professional background is managing financials throughout the financial crisis for Timco from 2007 to 2017. And it's one of those things, one of the financial innovations that was introduced to the market. And it's, it's one of the unfortunate ones that it didn't exist, then it becomes available. And then everybody thinks it's old news like it's been a hundred years. But Timothy Geithner in the United States introduced stress testing for the US banks. And that's what lifted uh, uh, US banks out of crisis, and that was increased the confidence of the market to participate in US banks. Europeans followed with the stress test in Europe, 
uh, and now you have a stress test as a measure uh, to show how resilient is your portfolio. Now, stress testing and scenario analysis is still very, very, very uncommon in uh, asset owners and asset managers, anybody who manages capital. So I'm not gonna be specific here because stress testing, if you uh, take on board the stress testing of your portfolio towards market volatility, liquidity events, uh, shutdown of mar the largest market producer uh, providers like Bloomberg and climate change, that once you've gone through the exercise of asking yourself that questions on behalf of your beneficiaries, which is, is my port can my portfolio withstand scenario A, scenario B, scenario C? Once you've gone through the scenario analysis, the next very question is, am I provisioned well to meet uh, this, this uh, particular eventuality and what are the, what are the percentages are. So I think it's, it's amazing. Um, the, the currently, we're experiencing this paradigm shift where UK trustees are asked uh, uh, by the regulators to produce this analysis from last year for defined contribution, from this year to defined benefit, which I still think UK is on a, you know, a very forward thinking in terms of its legislation. Uh, and, uh, and addressing the right stakeholders. And I think it's we're in a honeymoon season where uh, pension trustees, I don't want to oversimplify things because I don't know, I'm not a pension trustee, are given a unique opportunity to introduce the tools like scenario analysis to evaluate their Alex, asset I, managers. Can I just ask a question here? You're talking about all of this scenario analysis. Where's the data coming from to do this? Before all this stuff, we're talking here about data that's, that's relevant for, for climate reporting, for ESG reporting. Where's the data coming from? Please point to me one yes. consistent data set that matches the requirements that are needed. One thing that people can, can agree on that's credible. I think if yeah, you, Chris, if take, you a use, step, uh, take a step back on uh, on people agree on. Let's let's agree on what we're solving for here. First of all, are no, we that's solving not the question. For... The question was, do we have but the data? It, no, but it must be the question because the tail cannot wag the dog. No, I disagree with that. And I disagree with that because sometimes you have to start with what you can get that's available. If you ask an asset manager two questions, what data can you give me? And I want this data. The manager will give you the things that it can give you, even if it's diff even if it is. So I'll give you, a, I'll rephrase that again and give an example. If you ask them for something that is your right, that is not sensitive, but it's difficult to give, the manager will say no. If you ask them for something that's incredibly sensitive, but is easy to give, the manager will say yes. And they will always start with the conversation, which is you don't understand how complicated and expensive this is to get for us. No, 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 I understand. Um, uh, what, I, uh, what I'll stand on, and I think we may agree to disagree on this, is the following, which is, um, it's my contention that ESG analysis by definition, by itself is meaningless in isolation to returns. ESG analysis in the context of an impact framework is really, really powerful. The quality and the quantity of data you produce or look for is directly relevant, which are you solving for? And I'll give you a quick example. If you have an ESG lens as a pension trustee, as an asset manager, you could have invested in uh, renewable uh, in solar panels. Okay, so you are investing in ESG. You have, um, I think in some parts of Europe, the government schemes in the early 2000s supported farmers taking cheap loans and putting, in, and putting uh, solar plants on their fields. You put a solar plant on their field, it defaults because it's not connected to the grid. It is not connected to ability to trade. Then you have private equity guys coming in and saying, dear, solar, dear, dear uh, farmer, now you defaulted on your loan. Let me buy your land for cheap. And it's still an ESG investments because you're buying solar panels. Now, the efficacy of this train of thought of um, solar panels thoughts could be 50-50, could have lost or gained money. If you have an investment framework, which is called net zero, 
or energy transition. And you're targeting a goal number seven, which is clean and affordable energy, clean, affordable, and accessible energy. Then solar panel, you don't stop with solar panels. It's an ability to put the solar panel to create a grid capacity to capture that to, to capture that energy and ability to trade. So then you capture the entire value chain. I, I, I just I must stop you. This this webinar is about data, not about uh, investment techniques. That's what you want to like to keep the focus on data. I hear what you're saying. Of course, you cannot separate the data from from the investment. No, I, I would just I would just do analysis. You can't do analysis without data. It's like creating the perfect model and having no input data. You so need you, to ask. You, my my contention is that you need to know yeah, which I, data I to ask, ask for. Chris, Chris, Alex, ask you. So I'd like to. But poor Svante has been sitting here for 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 um for half an hour now without without making a contribution. He is. Um, He's in he pain is, and on he, drugs, Dominic. He's okay. okay. He, <laughs> he he has to he has to make use of this inadequate data as well in in the work that he does in 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 the global fixed income. Markets. One of the thoughts I had, Svante, and I'd be interested to know what you think about this, is I'm not surprised that so many companies want to go private. These endless demands for more and more information. Uh, it's no wonder the stock markets are shrinking and listed companies are disappearing. But tell us, what's it like trying to understand the ESG position of bond issuers? A lot of the focus has been on equity issuers, but the bond markets are, are huge. The public ones are huge. The private ones are even huger. Um, how much difficulty do you face in sourcing data to make sensible judgments about who isn't isn't um, doing a good job on ESG. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me, Dominic. Um, I think I want to take a step back. I, I, I plowed through 15 years of relatively soulless investment banking, trying to find meaning and trying to make money, and stepped out about four years ago and joined a charity called Hand in Hand. And it, for me, it's a wonderful charity that works with trying to empower, fight poverty through empowering women through female entrepreneurship. It's an amazing charity. The problem is climate change is knocking it on its end. The ESG push is completely being destroyed by the climate change. Now we can all agree that there needs to be a transition. We can all agree that we need data to do this in a meaningful way from an investment perspective. We can have differing opinions about how acceptable or how useful the data is to make relevant decisions. One thing we can all be in agreement is climate change is here and now. And right with that thought, there is a fixed income market is at the center of this climate change. Some quick data, uh, the bond market is twice as big as the equity market. Of the, well, 75% of humankind's greenhouse gas emissions are being generated by 100 companies. These 100, of these 100 companies, only 30 are listed. And most of them have a majority shareholder who's not very applicable to transition or engagement. 100%, all of these companies are dependent on the fixed income market for funding their operations. So right there, the fixed income market is at the core of trying to prevent climate change. Let's just take the ESG analysis out of it. I think it's great, I think it's super important, but let's focus on the here and now what we can do as stakeholders in the markets. And that is target the fixed income market. And what we're trying to do is we're two ex investment bankers trying to apply an investment banking model on the transition. I shift large amount of capital as quickly as possible, not ourselves, but influence the market to shift it for us. And why and how do we wanna do that? We wanna target green, deep green investments and mitigate investments into deep fossil. And that for me is something that all investors, both the asset owners and the asset managers should look very closely at doing. Because right now we have a situation where everyone is talking a very strong green engagement, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of business as usual. There's inertia, it's misaligned interest. I can guarantee that every single large corporation on the planet has a large amount of employees who really care about the planet and care about climate change. But there are some few decision makers be it at the syndicate desks, be it the issuers, be it the boardroom level, C-suite, 
that are more interested in getting their bonus than committing uh, proper transitional decisions. And that's where we need the market to step in. We need to influence the market to shift capital out of deep fossil uh, coal power plant infrastructure buildouts into non-coal power plant buildouts and preferably green, deep green investments. And Andy, me, Andy, we, we, know, we, know, we know what you're trying to do. I just where, where are you getting the data to decide who and isn't making that transition? Well, the data is, is pretty clear to us. Um, it's, you know, we're not trying to be, we're not, first of all, we're not trying to make money off of creating any index. We're not trying to get sponsored by anyone to provide data. All we're trying to do is identify hypocrisy and misalignment of communication. So the data from our perspective is, look, if you're in any sense funding capital or, or directing capital towards deep fossil build out, that is ESG misaligned. So if you want to talk about data, I would suggest just use a bog standard, easily uh, an index that you know really well, and identify what are the low-hanging fruits, i.e. the least favorable companies to invest in and take them off the list. That's what we can do here now, because there's too much data, it's too inconclusive. That's our take on it. So you're using company reports and accounts, you're using other publicly available data, you're not reliant on, I don't know, self-certification by companies. There's no, it's basically old school. Which, I mean, you're not, you're not sending them questionnaires. You're, you're relying no. on them. <laughs> no, no, I, I mean, don't get, don't get me wrong. I think all stakeholders are trying to create change or do a wonderful job. What we're just trying to do is highlight the very obvious trade in front of everyone. Stop conducting business as usual and stop investing in deep fossil. And, and that is something that sounds very obvious and easy, but so many people are not starting to do that. We have numerous examples of pension funds being very green in their communication but funding tar sands in Alberta. And that makes no sense. But, but isn't this what TCFD is actually setting out to achieve? I mean, through, through TCFD, there are 4,200 companies that are disclosing uh, their carbon emissions. Um, and a thousand of those are disclosing their, their scope three, which is the most difficult. And as um, countries become uh, uh, make TCFD mandatory, that number will go up. And as more and more regulators get, get involved in and, and um, with consultations and, and regulations and directives, then that TCFD uh, disclosure, uh, and, and, and also uh, if you look at the TCFD uh, work, they're also looking at implied temperature rise and the way in which you can um, um, take companies' targets for reduction and, and how those can um, uh, um, be aimed towards the, the Paris Agreement, one and a half, two degrees above pre-industrial levels and how a portfolio, is, that, that's really what, what TCFD is trying to do is to, is to um, encourage those, that, that target setting. So from a, a listed world uh, of uh, investments, I'm not talking about, about private investments so much, it is possible to get the information and it is possible to do reporting today. And where the companies aren't disclosing, there are other data companies who, will, who are able to, in many cases, provide estimates of those carbon um, d disclosures. So uh, taking, I, think, taking, I think that's great. I just know we have a 300 gigaton budget and we're burning through 50 to 60 gigatons a year. So if we're going to reach the Paris line targets, we can't wait for a global consensus to take place in five or 10 years. We need to target these issues now. But I think that's what, what I mean, though. What I mean is company 
targets Sorry. to reduce emissions? I mean, are you saying those targets aren't aren't being addressed quickly enough? Hold on, could I could I just could I just stop you talking about about mm. that? Because we're, we're just here to talk about availability of data, not about whether these targets are achievable or or not. If you if you don't mind, we've had a couple of observations by the audience. One of which was Goku Suresh said, uh, "Define contribution, have voting rights?" Question mark. And Tanya Diaz said, "I didn't realise that that either." So. Um, Whoever said that, and I can't remember who it was. Um, possibly you, Natalie. Has Alex, been... Alex. Not quite sure what he was talking about. So, if you're invested in a defined contribution occupational scheme, then the trustees are looking after the assets on behalf of their beneficiaries of the trust, um, and it, the trustees would have the voting right, which they then usually delegate to the fund managers. Um, so, legally, the DC members of that arrangement wouldn't have. Uh, a voting right. If they were just private investors owning equity, then of course, like any other equity owner, they 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 would. So I guess in some structures, like small self-administered schemes, where you know there might be structures where they would, but not not normal DC space that's institutional. That is what I work in. Mm -hmm. now, so so that's interesting because um, uh, there is a company called Tamela. Uh, it's a startup funded by the Cambridge University. Um, built specifically and currently been tested by, uh, they have a contract with Legal in General specifically from defined contribution. Voting right is a fundamental fiduciary right of every single beneficiary and investor. Oh, I'm going to have to disagree with you there and I'll tell you the reason why. Let me, let, reason... Um, Chris, I invite you to disagree, but I'd like you to give you full information. Okay, because, go on then. Because uh, if you look at specifically follow Legal in General defined contribution scheme, they've piloted this program where they've put Tamela in the hands of individual voters, uh, participants in DC contribution, and they found in the last three months that 80% of people that put the voting machine in, in the hands of increased their participation on proxy more than that. Uh, they found that people start behaving towards this app like they behave towards the Facebook. Not only they react, they not only reactive to the proxies that have been put forward inside of their schemes through their funds, but they also looking every morning at information if something new had come in. So I think if we disagree, I think we should start uh, there. Right. I'll, I'll disagree with you on, a, on the basis of the very principle of pooled, of pooled funds. When you buy into a pooled fund, you're buying a piece of a secondary financial product. You're not buying the ownership of the underlying assets. The ownership of those assets exists with and only with the asset manager. So the only organization that has the right to direct the vote is the asset manager. Now, whether the asset manager follows the wishes of the trustees who may or not wish to follow the wishes of their underlying members is neither here nor there. The legal right to vote in a pooled fund exists and only exists with the beneficial owner of the underlying holding, and that is the asset manager. Only in segregated mandates does the asset owner, i.e. the pension fund, actually have the right to direct the vote directly. That's simple fact. There's no escaping that. Under the current is, system, yes. And there is only, you know, there's only one organization currently and one fund that has created the ability to uh, split the vote. If you, uh, there's been some very good papers put out, particularly by uh, Professor Ian Clacker from Leeds University, along with the AMNT, um, that has looked at splitting the vote on pooled funds. And, and every single manager says, no, we will vote according to how we want. And if group A trustees and group B trustees wish to vote differently, we will not split the vote and reflect the split opinion of those trustees. 
What? To, no, let me finish. No, no, no. You'll let me finish because I'll let you finish. So let me no finish, person. please. There is only one organization that I know of that has created an opportunity to allow split voting on pooled funds. And that is the product that's been created by a combination of Minerva, AMX, and Deutsche Bank, DWS Asset Management. Um, and they have created a product that allows split voting in pooled funds. The, as I understand it, the project with Legal in general is a much more of an opinion as where people would as where the underlying pensioners would like trustees to place the vote whether or not the vote is split by legal and general is not clear and whether or not legal and general actually adheres to what the majority would vote to is also not clear tumulo is a polling system that allows people to reflect their individual opinions but there is no necessary necessarily any correlation between what people have expressed as an opinion and what happens at the share level so uh chris thanks for this you um, and that's the key of my point actually you're describing me the current system and we're talking about creating an impact and adequacy of data yes uh yes okay so so my so my point is we can you can create new solutions two ways you can optimize something endogenously in the current system that doesn't take impact into account. And we can dance around risk adjusted returns in hope to make an impact, or you can redefine performance as risk return and impact. And making this adjustment, pulling a vote, putting a voting right in the hand of your beneficiary is not that big a deal. It's not actually bigger, a bigger chance because you've just mentioned you already have products that already exist in that space. What we One product, which has got only can a few I, million I, of assets. Sorry, can, I, can I just draw this? To, I mean, voting is an important part of this topic, but I'd like to draw this particular discussion because I think we've got the point. We're, we're down to our last 15 minutes, and I'd like to talk a bit more about the solutions um, before we go. And the solution, which a number of you have mentioned already, is, is standards. Um, I have a couple of questions on this. One is there seem to be a lot of standards out there already. I counted the, the PRI, the GRI, the SSASB, the CDP, the CDSB, the IIRC, the WEF, the Stakeholder Capitalism Metrics, the FRC, the Stewardship Code, the EU Disclosure Code, the SFP, it goes on and on. Um, so this is like the old joke about standards, there's, there's so many to choose from. So my question is twofold. Um, one, what is this telling us about, about um, about the quality of the data out there? Is this, has this become a huge feeding frenzy for lots of people who can make a living out of it? Um, but also what actually needs to be disclosed? Now, I know, Chris, you'll have a view on this, Chris Sear, but Arthur, you've been very quiet for a while. Perhaps we could, could ask you to, to comment on what needs, you know, so you, I think, yeah, you I think the regulators, what's, what's going on here? We've got this, we've even got the, the IFRS is now canvassing for a standardized ESG disclosure regime, which, Everything else I've heard this afternoon sounds like quite a sensible move. What do you, you think is going on? You would have seen, Dominic, that uh, um, uh, so some of those organizations have, have merged. So there's, there's already some uh, synchronization effort there. Uh, there are also, you're going to, hopefully, in a few years from now, you're, you're going to forget about those, uh, those standards and you're going to have uh, the regulatory framework telling you, at least for a couple of years, what's relevant in terms of. Uh, uh, ESG, ESG risks and what's much material to businesses. So I think, uh, as I mentioned previously, I really think that the new CSRD, uh, so the new version of NFRD is really trying to achieve this. Uh, so that, that might work for you know, Europe, maybe the UK, who knows, maybe this, this, this concept can be uh, taken on board. Um, and yeah, you have the IFRS working in parallel. Uh, it will be probably trickier because it's uh, an international uh, work. It's at the very beginning. 
but I see, you know, I see some real effort of convergence there. Um, so that's, that's, that's pretty good. Which KPI is relevant? It's a very lengthy conversation. Uh, I, I would just reiterate what, what Chris has said is, uh, and I think uh, uh, really what Alex is trying to do um, is to uh, merge, like to really go to the next step of ESG investment, which, which is not just to report the ESG footprint, but try to assess how it impacts the return on portfolios. Uh, but it is extremely complicated to, to do that uh, on a climate risk uh, uh, basis, for instance, if you don't have scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. And when you look at uh, uh, three, three issuers, I've, I've seen a study with three issuers, different data provider, they all came up with different figures. So yeah, yeah, which, yeah. which other set do you, do you, uh, do you consider in that in the context? So uh, just to, to answer to your questions, yes, yeah, standardization is, uh, is coming up. Uh, we don't really know exactly, uh, you know, which of the model that has been designed, uh, whether it's SISB or the GRI, that will be, inspire the most uh, the regulatory developments. Certainly, will be a mix of uh, of those frameworks, and uh, uh, it's going to take a couple of years to do it, but it's coming up. I think, um, and Dominic, I'll just. Dominic, I'll just say, say, say that that long list of, of acronyms, you know, organisations, that they are doing different things. Um, I mean, the, the GRI, SASB and IRC are, are investment frameworks. I wouldn't see, say they're data standard initiatives as such. Uh, the UNPRI is a set of principles that financial institutions can sign up to, and many, many do. Um, CDP is a not-for-profit data supplier. SFDR is a disclosure regulation. The WF is setting out to support ESG data well, standardization and is link my point is that you as a as an issuer or as an investor this gives you a pretty free field of play to say well we comply with this or we comply with that no so, I, don't, I don't think so how I don't would, think so would be able to tell the difference no I think it's what it's about is 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 that um that the scale of, of of change that's needed needs these organizations and needs the input in order to drive towards those metrics you know we've got the first fruit fruits are the scope one two and three and as Arthur just said you know there are differences between them and largely that's because there are estimates in there Arthur when we've, when we've looked at this in detail I mean, so getting those disclosures from company and those reports is the key I mean how unfortunate would it be if you assessed a portfolio using one measure versus another measure and you were downgraded or deselected on the basis of, of of the data not being comparable or inaccurate. I mean that that to me well, is the, the is, trick is. Sorry, Chris, go on. The trick is to go. To, so sorry, no. I mean, sorry, just on the point about data accuracy. The, the, the trick is to go to the disclosed mm -hmm. data and, and also to use more than one provider. I mean, that's how it improves. And I think maybe there's an element of the food chain here. As, as a, a, a NASA owner, a pension fund, if a, the pension fund needs that information, that then demand it and ask for it. And I would say also, the, I mean, Chris, to that point, your, your point here, go to more than one provider. It's hard enough for people to buy data from one provider, little more than more than one provider. I mean, it, this, this is and this is my point at the beginning. We're, it's being pension funds are being set an almost near impossible task, and they have to try and cut through this. And just to give you a little insight, Dominic, on how complicated it can be. So, so I collect holdings data from pool funds and from seg funds. I got oodles and oodles of holdings data on funds. And, and if you do get a data source, if you're lucky enough to find one that's consistent and you've got a portfolio with 1,600 line items in it, 300 of which are equities, 400 of which are um, uh, fixed income, and the rest are a mixed bag of derivatives and short positions, what the hell do you do with a short position? I mean, you've got a list of holdings, right? You know, for example, the carbon emissions data for this particular underlying 
And that underlying is represented in four different ways in the portfolios as a, as a, um, a short put option, a long call option, a fixed income product um, as, a, as a short position and as a long equity position. How do you aggregate the exposure that that portfolio has to the, the, the carbon exposure of that particular? This is, this is just, it's, <laughs> it's just- I, I, at, the, at the end of the day, it's transparency, right? Uh, initially, the problem was lack of transparency, lack of data. Now it's the opposite. There's too many people making money, providing their version of the data. And that is, of course, creating a feeding frenzy of a new asset class of both asset managers wanting to profile their yeah. ESG funds and also uh, data providers. And at the end of the day, like the last point of this whole thing is that you have a huge misalignment of interest, which of course is rampant. It's a lot of people want to communicate something green, but it's very much more expensive to do it green. And that will be the greenwashing that we have. That's uh, you know, I really like that point. That's the point. People will take the data to say, give the message that they want. Yeah. That's uh, the problem uh, Chris, you've got. I, I, Chris, I, that's a very good point. But I'd like Natalie to come in on this um, because you have to. Thank you, Don. You're, you're reliant on the one hand on, on data vendors who are in it to make money. And, you know, they all rate companies, the same company, a totally different way. You've got all these principles and standards. All over this. I mean, as Chris says, this job does. Is this job impossible? Uh, well, Chris kind in suggesting that we're trying to do the impossible, uh, but actually the regulators are, are recognising the difficulties. So the obligation on pension trustees is to collate this data as far as they are able. And actually to get a start on it, doing it as far as we are able um, seems pretty reasonable. We can also use proxies. So if there just isn't a date, data available for a portfolio, we can reach for a sensible proxy to construct our aggregated um, metrics that way. So early, early uh, disclosures are going to have holes and they're going to have proxies. Um, and we're going to have to come up with ways of tackling short positions and derivative positions and so on. But actually I'm fairly confident that we can get started on this. And as we get started and realize sort of what metrics it is that we want to dis disclose um, in our reports and what we are going to set our long and short-term targets based on, then the asset managers are going to lose business if they can't help support us in the data provision of that. Um, you know, so I think there is enough money in pension funds and insurance companies that once we want this sort of stuff, um, the market's going to have to follow. So I'm, I'm a little bit more positive than you, Chris. Okay. Now we have we have only five minutes. Sorry, you, Natalie, the, because uh, at ICMA we are uh, we have a couple of asset manager, but also asset owner as members, and we, you know, we're really trying to do our best to uh, you know get get the data that asset manager and asset owner needs. And one example of that, and I, I, Dominique, you've asked in your questions, preparatory question, what type of asset is missing. Uh, the data that it needs. Uh, for us, one of the concerns we have is that the securitized um, uh, markets, uh, where the data should be actually available, readily available, is not transmitted. Uh, so we're conducting a, a, a series of uh, meetings with, uh, with buy-side members and hopefully originators around auto loans, RMBS, all the, all the information that should be available, that seems, that seems basic, you know, CO2 emission of, uh, uh, of the vehicle you're exposed to. We don't have it. It doesn't flow to, it doesn't flow to us at the moment. So um, there is some, uh, uh, trust me, some uh, realization on the asset manager side that they, they need to uh, 
uh, get as much data as possible so that you can also fulfill your, your obligations. Okay, good point. Thank you. Now we're into our last five minutes and I'd, I'd like to finish as close to three as, as we can, but so I'd like to put to each of you um, a question. This is something which Alex has, has raised repeatedly this afternoon, which is um, we're always being told that ESG doesn't damage investment performance, but if the data is, is either non-existent or unreliable or um, split across different uh, sets of data, how can we possibly know that it doesn't damage investment performance? Um, Alex, can you give us a you're you're the expert on this. Can you give us a very quick answer? Because uh, we're down to four minutes now. On how do we know that that, that it I, 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 at, at the risk of not giving you the answer, maybe you you expect. Um, I think ESG in isolation is meaningless to returns. It can be up, but it can be down. ESG applied in the context of an impact framework, supported by the data, is uh, produces superior returns. Okay. Um, Chris, what's your, Chris Johnson, what's your perspective on that? Right, I think we've established earlier in the call that ESG scores and ratings um, are more like buy, hold, sell recommendations than credit ratings. And that's what they are designed to do. Their investment information for, for pre-trade asset managers produce their own version because you know, they don't take those, those provided scores as, as, as their determinant. So to take the performance across passive indices from different providers, it's likely there will be different results. So my answer will be, look at the whole picture holistically. Don't take any uh, instances in isolation. Mm -hmm. Svante, what's your, what's your answer to the question, ESU doesn't damage investment performance? How do we know? Uh, I think ESG is too broad. What, what you can do though is look at carbon intensive and the carbon non-intensive. And we've done a research report recently on that very topic. And even in a rallying and oil price market, the non-carbon intensive credits perform very well compared to the carbon intensive ones. Of course, all of this is overlaid by a ton of money flowing into renewables and a lot of money flowing out of fossil. Arthur, a quick answer. I would agree. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's about flows, and certainly at the moment the flows are massive, and you can see uh, some uh, some green company. Uh, uh, um, uh, sorry, I, I just lost my train of thought. But yeah, you, you can see some you can see some assets that are. Uh, skyrocketing right now so uh, clearly the flows also have the performance is that something temporary uh are we just in a transition clearly i mean this this i think we're at the beginning of something so um it's it's here to last so uh, clearly it's not it's not like uh, uh, the old saying anymore mm -hmm. natalie um arthur it says it's a wall of money driving up uh, asset value so it can't possibly go wrong what do you think <laughs> go wrong bubbles no um I, I mean, the challenge for pension trustees is to set um, carbon targets, um, but also meet their fiduciary responsibility. And that fiduciary responsibility is um, is to uh, do the best um, they can in terms of the financial return. So uh, that doesn't mean just you know getting the highest return possible, but looking for return. So actually, there is that risk that um, you do, if that whole industry sets very stretching carbon reduction uh, targets and the underlying companies aren't transitioning, then it's going to be a, a wall of money chasing um, green investments, which ultimately could be damaging to returns. And trustees obviously are going to have to avoid that, which is why they believe the engagement is so important. Um, but at the same time, you can't deny that um, there are risks in stranded assets and assets that are just going to become redundant because they don't they don't transition and 
pension trustees have to consider those risks and try and avoid those assets. Just one thought prompted by what you've just said, Natalie. Um, what about the Woodford risk here? Are there enough of these green assets or are people being driven by the search for ESG compliant products into asset classes that they should not be going into? Do you at, see the moment, at the moment, I don't think they are um, flooding into it excessively. But as Arthur highlighted it, uh, and I agreed, it, it is a potential problem that one has to keep an eye on. Um, Woodford, I, I think there was a lot of issues around complexity and illiquidity there. Um, and uh, pension trustees need to make sure they understand the investments that they're getting into and have the liquidity that they need, um, which actually a lot of people think pension funds don't need liquidity because of their such long-term liabilities. But most, um, at least defined benefit schemes, actually have quite short time horizons now until they are looking to buy out. So I, I would say, actually, most of them are quite aware of their liquidity needs. Thanks, Natalie. We're, we're kind of out of time now, but Chris, Sierra, I'd like to give you a, a, a last word to you and answer this question. You know, there isn't, you. the data isn't there to, to reassure us yet. Um, but the question you asked me was, does ESG uh, perform better and, um, than, than standard? Well, how, um, do we know? how do we know? Well, I know, because I've got the data. So I've got okay. um, 10,000 portfolios of data a large enough, a hundred or so of which are tagged as ESG funds. And I compare this to a sample size of, of, of similar um, active equity, in many cases, funds um, that are not tagged as ESG, just a regular funds. And what I can say is this, the one thing I know about ESG, I know nothing about the way the managers have described it other than the tagging or the way people use it, which is to put it in a, an ESG portfolio. And it costs 50, 60 basis points more than the standard product and does not deliver a net performance that is greater. And it's a net performance in absolute terms. It is the net performance of the assets. Gross net performance, it costs more and does not perform better. I'm not saying it performs worse, it doesn't perform better. So I don't see any evidence and I see no evidence indeed um, from the way in which the, uh, the funds are described that it actually does what it says in the tin and that's what bothers me most. People are buying it without necessarily buying something they can quantify um, and they're doing it on the basis of the fact that it gives them something that they think they're getting, but after the fact, they can't prove it. All I know is it costs more and doesn't perform. To the SCM direct point, uh, there doesn't seem to be much difference between what uh, ESG and non-ESG funds hold when you get down to it. That's I, what their analysis said. You see the same? Um, I'm, I haven't actually looked at the holdings data for those funds yet. It's, it's kind of a project. But as I say, I've got, I've got all the data. It's just a piece of analysis for me that I have to do, and I, I'm, I just don't have the capacity at the moment. But, but actually, it's something I could do, so maybe I should. Mm -hmm. Good. So somebody listening would like to pay you to do it. Um, we'd like to see that when we have you back. Now, we're out of time, but I'd like to end with some observations by, um, by members of our audience, um, particularly Goku Suresh. just says, ESG is a big mountain. We should break it down. For example, TCFD reports, who reports this and who does not, if they report, are they giving full disclosure? Secondly, use machine learning to synthesize this information. Very good point, this using AI and machine learning to get to all this unstructured data. Use machine learning to synthesize this information from unstructured. I feel that if we should take simple and small steps and be transparent on the methodology, an ESG shouldn't be a score or a number, rather a feedback or a sentiment. And getting data about ESG should not be costly. Thank you, um, Goku, for that. And I'm glad you enjoyed the presentation. Um, Raymond Wright says, is this going to be available to watch back? I can tell you, Raymond, yes, it is. And uh, um, you'll find there's lots of, of content in here to, to look at when you 
find time to do that. But I think we must stop there. We've won, run three or four minutes over. Uh, I'd like to thank our panelists, Arthur Krabbe, Ravikma, uh, Svante Horn from the AFII, uh, Chris Johnson from HSBC, Chris Sear from Clearglass, Alex Strzok of Goals First, uh, and Natalie Winterfrost of Law Debenture. It's a big subject. I can see we're going to have to come back to this um, and revisit it uh, sometime soon. But for now, it's goodbye. 